Kia ora welcome to Te Hiringawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. I'm Dr Sarah Jane O'Connor and I teach science communication in the Centre for Science and Society here at Te Hiringawaka. I'm also an ecologist and your host of this sustainability-focused podcast. Today I'll be talking to two researchers from different fields about climate action, both from a technological and a societal perspective. First I'd like to introduce our guests, Dr Shalini Divya and Dr Amanda Thomas. Dr. Jalini Divya has a PhD in chemistry and is the co-founder and CEO of Tasman Ion. Her PhD saw her develop a battery technology that is safer, more sustainable and more affordable. She sees new battery technology as essential to greener ways of operating. Dr. Amanda Thomas is a feminist political geographer and senior lecturer at Te Hirangawaka who studies environmental democracy, the ways that people imagine and have a say about environmental futures and whose voices are heard. Her research has focused on oil-free and climate justice activism, freshwater policies, and Pākehā-ness and decolonisation. During this kōrero, we will think about where things stand in Aotearoa, what climate action is underway, progress being made by individuals and organisations, and how we sustain our future. Kia ora kōrero. Kia ora. Hi. Amanda, I want to start with you to help set the scene today. We're focused on climate action. Some listeners might interpret that as climate activism. I'm interested in if they're the same thing and what does climate action look like in Aotearoa? Climate action I guess we could think about as being the broad collective of tools that people are pulling together to try and address climate change. I guess there's an important differentiation to be made in there about about that action. For example, some policies that are kind of nasty around overpopulation and that places the blame of climate change on people in what we talk about as developing countries and places the blame on women and fertile women, especially in fertile people. For those of us that are interested in more of a climate justice perspective, we might think much more carefully about the equitable implications of our climate actions. So that any action we take to address climate change has to not only address carbon and methane and our greenhouse gases, but must also address inequalities that exist in our society. So we want to be taking action that also addresses poverty, also addresses gender inequality, so that we are building a fairer society as we build a fairer planet. And we can think about activism as the things that people do together to try and work towards a better, fairer world and a climate changing environment. Thanks, Amanda. That's a wonderful place to get us started. Shalini, I want to come to you. When I was thinking about your research, it occurred to me that batteries play such an important role in our work, in our leisure, in our transport, including helping that transition to renewable energies. What interested you in this field? What brought you to your research? So I come from India, and um, India is still suffering from energy poverty, which means not everyone in the country gets electricity. Um, I come from an urban area, therefore I had access to power. But we had days where you had scheduled power cuts. We did not have solar lamps back then. But now that solar energy has become such a big part of our journeys and industries are transitioning towards renewable sources of energy, which means using solar panels, solar cells, um, hydroelectricity, And that is where batteries came into action. You want to store that energy when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. So when I finished my bachelor's and I was looking into my master's, my project was based on making this fancy nanomaterials for lithium-ion batteries. And when I realized the impact of batteries, 
that is when it hit me that I want to take this project further. I want to understand that when I make something in a chemistry lab, how can I make it better so that the batteries perform better? So cut to my PhD, the idea of aluminium ion batteries was given. Aluminium is a very cheap metal. It can be easily recycled. So that whole concept of using a renewable source of energy or a rechargeable battery that is affordable by all, that begins by using raw materials that is cheap. You don't want to use um, a material that is not accessible and is there because right now users, consumers, they are getting aware of recycling their batteries but you do not recycle 100% of a lithium battery. You can only recycle 30% of that because the process is expensive. So it's all about just trying to cut down the cost of, of the methods we use to move towards sustainability. Just thinking a bit more broadly and back to our topic of climate action, what do you think the role of technology, industry, research and development plays in aiding and supporting climate action? Um, right now I'm going to talk about the three R's um, that even the investors uh, want us, like startups, to focus on. Reusability, repurposing and recycling. If you are thinking of developing uh, a technology, for example, like a battery, you have to make sure you're not harming the environment in any way. So I think um, when we have climate tech uh, or deep tech or clean tech forums all over the world right now, it's important for the upcoming technologies to talk about the, the, the three R's of their respective technologies and see how that's going to make sure that we are not repeating the mistakes, the previous generation, if I can say, made. Amanda, what about you? What do you think the role of industry companies is in responding to or supporting um, climate action? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think Charlene has demonstrated um, yeah, what an excellent kind of approach looks like where it's about being attuned to the social environment and thinking about the whole life cycle of products and the implications for people in their lives. So I think there's certainly scope in there for for businesses of all different stripes to be taking leadership and thinking this stuff through really carefully and I feel really lucky in Aotearoa New Zealand that we have all sorts of businesses that do that. And I guess from an, an individual consumer point of view we need options to be able to make those choices. Shalini do you feel like there is consumer demand for this? Yeah so um, when I was doing my PhD I attended this commercialization workshop and at the end of it I was required to make a mock pitch in front of mock investors. But that exercise allowed me to talk to consumers like us. So market validation becomes really important because when researchers think of creating something new, uh, we have to make sure we are making something that you actually use. Um, it's just about trying to understand in what parameters can we address the demands of the consumers and create our development plan suiting those, those demands. Um, yeah, the, the journey has been extremely adventurous. I used to say it was fun, but it's an adventure because when we think about sustainability, there are so many other issues that we can get into and we're just getting started. <laughs> Amanda, some of your research is focused around climate justice. Can you give us a bit of an intro on what that means both in Aotearoa New Zealand and our role internationally? Yeah, so climate justice is a concept that has come from the grassroots or the flax roots as we might say here in Aotearoa New Zealand 
At its core, it's the idea that the people that are least responsible for climate change will be the most affected. So uh, there was a report just on The Guardian the other day that the wealthiest 1% of the world caused double the CO2 emissions as the poorest 50%. So there's a huge inequality in who is emitting carbon. So climate justice is the idea that any response to climate change uh, has to address those inequalities. Um, and there has to be a rebalancing of consumption. I guess it's, it's also a critique back to some of those ideas that a lot of people talk to the idea of overpopulation and it, and it generalises and flattens the huge uh, inequalities in greenhouse gas emissions. So having much more nuance about global inequalities and how we address that at the same time. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we've got a pretty long-standing climate justice movement that for a long time was sort of shouting into the void. And it's only been in the past few years, really, that climate justice uh, discourse or the idea of climate justice has sort of been mainstreamed. So that's been really exciting for lots of those activists. There's also a bit of a risk there that the, the core of that gets hollowed out. It becomes a little bit like, dare I say it, the term sustainability, which can sometimes mean everything to all people. But climate justice is, is kind of a radical concept in the, in the sense that it is about changing lots of stuff about our society, lots of stuff about our economy. The fact that if we have to make change anyway, let's make change that lifts everyone up. Exactly. If, if people think that they're taking good climate action just by buying a Tesla, but they're still flying to um, Europe every year for a, a resort holiday, um, that's not climate justice. Um, if Tesla is making enormous profits and laying off a whole lot of workers, that's not climate justice. So uh, it's about having much more nuance in how we talk and think about climate action. Shalini, in picking up on the thinking around climate justice and equity, I wanted to c come back to what you'd mentioned around energy poverty. It's the way I understand it means many people may lack the energy that is important for health and hygiene, access to food and water, yep. education and employment. How do you hope that more sustainable, more affordable battery technology may help to address these issues? Um, so, for example, India has just started introducing solar panels to all communities, be it urban or rural. Um, I had come across this advertisement and um, where they were advertising solar lamps and there was like a group of kids in a village and they were sitting around a solar lamp studying. I could easily relate to that because that was my childhood. The difference was it was not a solar lamp, but like a lantern. That's how I spend my childhood evenings. When you think of communities like that, it's important for them to understand that uh, an affordable battery technology, a cleaner battery technology that they can use along with the solar panels is going to solve their lives. So not only can they use that um, stored energy for example, when kids want to study. But in India, in, in the rural communities, you have women who have created these handloom you know, industries as well. So not putting a lot of pressure on you know, using electricity from the main source, but it gives them the freedom to use that stored energy from an affordable source. So it's important as a researcher for me to make the consumers aware of the options they have so that they understand what energy poverty actually means and that they do have options which will help eradicate energy poverty in the future. Amanda, I know that some of the projects or some of the groups that you've thought about in New Zealand, those 
that are enacting climate action have this very deep sense of community, similar to what Charlene is saying. How important is that for driving how we respond to these really big and complex issues? Well, that's one of the key things that I've found through my research and research I've done with colleagues as well, that being in community is really the main thing that sustains people in their activism. So I mentioned before that the idea of climate justice has sort of only been mainstreamed in the past few years, but activists have been talking about this for a long time and there's often quite large uh, social consequences to that. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of social pressure. So finding community, finding those spaces to be with people that are also kind of interested in building more ethical worlds for distant and close others um, has been one of the really key things for people sustaining their activism. But also, I guess, the idea that just being in community uh, is kind of a form of activism in and of itself. Resilient communities are, are communities where people know their neighbours and have strong networks amongst the people around them. One of the great worries in recent years in liberal democracies has been this kind of splitting, this political splitting, and, and the emergence of an increasingly vocal far right. And, and that has really dangerous implications for climate action because it's linked in with fossil fueled economies and attachment to a fossil fueled life. So there, there is a sense that while we need to be able to name and those sorts of things is unacceptable in our society, eco-fascism, the patriarchy and sexism, yeah, racism and anti-treaty settlement, those things we have to be able to name them and identify those things as not being appropriate within our public discourse. You know, there's, there's boundaries around what we can and should be able to say. But having different political ideologies to my neighbour but being able to be in conversation with them, these are important parts of our democratic fabric too. Such a great point. In India you have a lot of um, homemakers and they know what's going to work, what's not going to work. Being a female founder myself, there have been some unexpected experiences and, you know, like where I had to sometimes explain my personal lives to others, which, of course, my male colleague did not have to. So if I'm facing that at, um, in, in, a, in a university level, I cannot even imagine what the homemakers go through. So when we talk about making people aware we have to start from, you know, the grassroots level, like reach out to the women of the, the community and if they realise that this is the way to go forward, that's how I hope to build the society. Amanda, what does climate action mean being in Aotearoa with Te Tiriti, with our Pacific neighbours? What do you think the role of Pākehā is in that action? I think one of the big things is to understand is that the climate here has been changing for the past 200 years through the process of colonisation. The vast areas of forest that have been cleared, for instance, rivers have changed. Um, there's been a really rapid and fundamental change in our environment. So Māori communities have already experienced rapid climate change in one sense. We know that a climate just response is also in Aotearoa New Zealand rooted in Te Tiriti or Waitangi. And so that means coming back to those fundamental things that are in Te Tiriti, and one of those things is Tiranga Tiratanga, so that Māori never ceded sovereignty. So one of the things to really grapple with in imagining a fair and good future is, what does that mean? For Pākehā, I think there's lots of things that we can do in this space. One of them is, is listening carefully to Māori. There are so many really prominent, amazing Māori climate activists. 
Um, I think about the community in Tefano Apanoi that led the protests against offshore oil exploration in 2010-2011. I think about climate justice, Taranaki, envisioning what climate justice looks like and very clear calls for what we can do and support. I think the other huge thing at the moment is there is a lot of fear around co-governance. So before we even get to Te Tiriti and Te Noranga, Te Ratanga, we're in a, a moment in time where we're talking a lot about co-governance. Um, and Pākehā, a lot of Pākehā seem to be really afraid of this, and I'm not sure why, because we know that when lots of diverse voices are in the room, that's when the best solutions are put forward. That's when we do lots of our learning, when there's different and diverse voices in the room. So actually I think it's an incredible opportunity for us to be doing some deep thinking um, and come up with really interesting things about how our country might look. So that would be a few of the big things I think Pākehā need to do in this space. That leads nicely to my next question, which is for both of you. Listeners might want to take more action in their own lives, whether that's at their community level or in their household, whatever it might look like. Do you have any advice for where they might start or suggestions? Start using solar panels. They're really cheap. That's the least we can do. Repurpose most of the things if if you can. Because there is this concept of if anything goes wrong, we want to buy a new product. Try not to do it. Um, If you can repair it, do that because um, e-waste is a big problem. And carbon footprint. There are so many apps and websites that can actually calculate carbon footprint that you generate. So if you go onto those websites or have those apps in your cell phones, then you will realize the actual steps we can take to reduce our own carbon footprint. I think my suggestion would be find your community or communities, the spaces where you feel like you can affect change. So thinking about different groups that you might join, uh, whether that's groups like Gen Zero or supporting the work of Te Arafatu and other Indigenous youth leaders in the climate space, but even things like joining your residence association. This is some big issues that we've been talking about today. (laughs) What makes you hopeful or optimistic in terms of how we might respond to climate change or are responding to climate change? I think the interest that, um, for example, students show um, when I talk about technology, like, like the batteries that I make, I've got high school students, you know, when they come on laptops in our department, their first question when they see these fancy equipment is like, oh, do you make batteries in there? Uh, is it similar to the one in my cell phone? So it gives me immense happiness that they at least understand the change we are trying to bring in the society. Amanda, anything makes you hopeful, optimistic? Yeah, I definitely. I, I have to admit to bouts of eco-anxiety, but that is outweighed by the hopeful things I see. Definitely, as Charlene said about students and our students here at Te Waka who are so keen and interested and brilliant, uh, but also... I talked about fears around co-governance, but there's also lots of people that are really interested in decolonisation as well. There's a huge conversation that's happening in this area, led by Māori, but lots of Pākehā, especially young Pākehā, who really want to know more about this. And that is fundamental to to climate justice in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So that that whole scene and that interest in decolonisation gives me huge amounts of hope. Thank you, Shalini and Amanda, for your time. It's been really inspiring to hear from you both, um, both about concrete research and industry action and the communities who are taking action around the country. And I hope our listeners have felt similarly inspired. Nā mihi. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, 
Subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.